Hello Blazers, welcome to episode 74 of UAB Green and Told, original debut June 20th, 2022. Through our podcast, we have the chance to share stories from members of the UAB community. Want to listen to past episodes? We can be found at alumni.uab.edu slash greenandtold on Spotify or the Apple Podcast app. While there, leave a written review so other alumni can find us as well. I'm Greg Barry, a UAB alum and assistant director in the UAB Office of Alumni Affairs. Washington, D.C. is known for many things. Monuments, cherry trees, and politicians are all part of our nation's capital. For many, like today's guest, Lisa Joseph, the infatuation with D.C. happened in an instant, enamored by the city's beauty, culture, and long-standing history. But the strength of the players in the capital city can also draw you in. I got to kind of see all of these super powerful people and the way they worked. And I was just an assistant to the executive vice president. However, at times, the love affair is just that, an affair that wanes and leaves a bad taste in your mouth. I had such a positive outlook when I first went to D.C., but after spending that year and a half in the real world of D.C., you get a little disillusioned. But as we'll hear from Lisa, that disdainment for D.C. didn't last long. That's when I finally hit that sweet spot of everything that fits my personality, and it's actually what I do today, but I just do it as a government employee. When you check out the word indecision in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, you'll find the following definition, a wavering between two or more possible courses of action. Let's be real. We all struggle with making the right or wrong decisions all the time, which can lead to us teetering between a myriad of choices. For Lisa Joseph, her early adulthood was plastered with indecisions. Not only did she toy with taking classes at Auburn and Birmingham Southern, it took her a while to figure out what she wanted to study. I was one of those people that I changed my major, oh, I don't know, like maybe five times. Okay, so I could not find the fit. I'd always loved history and I'd always been a big reader. So I'd always thought of that, but I always had this notion of, well, what kind of job is that going to bring? But anyway, after just absolutely disliking all of my classes and every other major, I finally was like, you know what? I'll just make it work. So I'm going to study history. So it was nice to finally arrive at that decision. Was there anything growing up that drew you to history or was it just one of those things about, you know what? Political history sounds interesting. I'm going to go that route. I I had always been fascinated by just things that had happened before and that had influenced where we are today in the world. And I don't know why, but I used to always ask, I think 9-11 and being a young kid during 9-11 was really impactful because I remember being in seventh grade and wondering like, wait, what is happening? I don't understand anything. And then as I grew up and understood, I got really into learning about the Middle East. And at first, because I was like, how do you get to the point in that in that area to where this is, you know, fundamentalism and learning about that. So it started there. And then I also got like, I had my, I feel like every American sometimes gets into this. I had a, a foray into loving English history. So I loved all the kings and queens and watched the tutors like on repeat. Um, I took a lot of classes at UAB on that too. So I, I've had like periods of time where I focused on different things uh, in history. You landed at UAB after going elsewhere for a short spell. Why was it UAB at that point? Why was it the perfect choice? The hugeness of it just didn't really fit my personality. 
you know, and I know that when you're um, in your first two years at school, no matter what, except for maybe a few classes, you're in classes of, you know, hundreds of people. But I felt so lost in everything at Auburn. And so, you know, and, I, and I'm close to my family. So I decided UAB because I just thought it would be a very, it would be very focused. So I was, I was so ready to focus and I felt like I couldn't do that. And I, and when I got to UAB, I really felt I, I, I actually got to do that. And so that's kind of why I picked UAB. I, you know, Birmingham Southern was thrown in there too, but I was all over the place, you know, <laughs> I love schools. So I was like, I want to try all of them. <laughs> Are you kind of that way? Cause it, you mentioned that you kind of jumped all over the place for for finding a major. You went to Auburn. You looked at BSC. You wind up at UAB. Is that kind of your personality? Yes, absolutely. And uh, we'll get to it in a little bit. You know, and I landed in consulting, which is exactly you know that kind of area where you, you know you sit on a project for six months and then you move to something else, and you know you get a whole you challenge your brain in a whole new way. So yeah, I am like I guess I just I get bored easy. And so I need to be like continuously challenged. But in saying that, I really found my home at UAB and was challenged there consistently for the last two and a half years of my schooling. And I, you know, I was sad to leave. What was the best part about taking classes and your experience here at UAB? At UAB is when I fully switched to history and I just can't say enough about that program and the professors. So, I mean, all of them influenced me in different ways. Um, Dr. Corley was a very large influence on me. He brought me back into, he did a lot of U.S. history and I was very at that point like, oh, I don't care about the U.S. It's so boring. But his classes, like I finally understood, it kind of made me feel more appreciative of understanding like where I come from and, you know, studying Southern history. And he encouraged me to delve into that. Also, Dr. Keat, uh, he has such a non-traditional way of teaching. Uh, some of his classes, we acted out scenes in actual history, like trials that went on like Galileo and Darwin. Oh, cool. And so, yeah, it was, it was just this whole different way of teaching and I never felt when I was taking classes at UAB that, yes, they're all history classes, but none of them had the same structure or anything. So I was continuously challenged every day and the, the different, it being so different in each class, I never got bored, if that makes sense. <laughs> you wind up with a political history degree. That was concentration. That was, yes. Yes. So what is a political history degree? And there couldn't have been a lot of students going that route. No. And also, I kind of like made that a little bit in a sense. Um, that's also another great thing about UAB. You can like pick your focus. And um, well, after, you know, really getting into U.S. US history, and obviously that's a lot of politics, I decided to start taking classes that, that UAB agreed to count towards my major in uh, political science. Um, so one in particular was uh, the the presidency, I think, was the class. So it was all about presidential power, and and it was it was fitting really well into my history studies of current events and studying our political structures and different presidents and their how power has risen each each term. I started only focusing classes on that and Southern history. So like melding political Southern history and political science into one. And I just kind of named it political history. So I would say it's more of like a concentration 
before you left your senior thesis, it was Woodrow Wilson, the South is in the saddle. Mm-hmm. A, why Woodrow Wilson? B, what was it about? Oh, I love this guy. I haven't talked about this in a while. You know, this was Dr. Corley too. So he, you know, I had taken um, Dr. Doss's classes on the Civil War and like, and antebellum. So I'm antebellum South. Then I did like the full, just in-depth Civil War. And then I took New South with Dr. Corley. And in that class, I just got so fascinated by the the feelings of the people in the South around that time. So that's the time period of like, the early World War One to to probably like the 30s before World War II. And I might not say that correctly. He might slap my wrist. But um, I had been doing one of the things in his classes is he had us read presidential biographies. And then we had to like do reports on them. And I had done Eisenhower and he came to me, Dr. Crowley came to me for my thesis and said, you really need to look into Woodrow Wilson and its impact on the South. And I was like, you know, when I think of Woodrow Wilson, I think of like um, the League of Nations. I don't think of Southern history. So, I, you know, after doing a lot of research, it was such a large movement for the South for him to be elected. And there's a few things he did. Um, He segregated the Washington offices. They were desegregated at the time. He resegregated them. He put in power of uh, major government branches, definite segregationists. And and he had this, there was new, the reason why it's called the South is in the saddle is because news articles ran all over the South. And that, that was the title, the South is in the saddle. He was actually, he was born in Georgia, but grew up in Virginia. And it was very much, um, you know, Southern voices who were feeling like they had been taken back by the North could, could finally hear their voices heard. And that was definitely Jim Crow era. And they felt like they had someone on their side. He was also a really good friend of I'm going to butcher this, but I think Eugene Debs, the birth of a nation's writer and director, which was a movie. And that's a, and if anyone's not familiar, and it's an extreme propaganda film about African-Americans harming white people. It's, it's horrific if you, if you watch it, but because they were friends at Princeton, he actually, and it's the first movie to ever be previewed at the White House. So it's these, it's these little things of racial history that Wilson kind of raised to a national level. And I'm not trying to like completely diss his character, but this is something that people don't talk about with Wilson. So I didn't even touch on his League of Nations, you know, which, you know, obviously eventually turns into the United Nations work and his post-World War I work at all, because there's such a breadth of his impact down in the South that happens in those that first term. I don't think I'm going out on a limb to say Woodrow Wilson is not your favorite president. Who is your favorite president? <laughs> oh, no. Um, I have to say, I, you know, this is tough. You know, as far as I like someone who never became president, who Bobby Kennedy, you know, he never was president, but I think Bobby Kennedy was just one of these pivotal figures that would have been one of the best presidents we could have had. So sitting presidents, there's so, there's so many. I mean, I love Teddy Roosevelt. I feel like he was the real deal because I love his character. Um, But yeah, I can't, I can't pick. (laughs) Okay. No, that's fair. That is fair. the end of your UAB career, you wound up 
getting with the Washington Center um, yes. an internship. Talk a little bit about that and exactly what the Washington Center is. When I was coming to the end, you know, I had I had just loved my degree so much, and I and I didn't really want this this foray into politics to stop. And so I, Dr. Corley again said, you know, you should try instead of just going straight into a master's program, you should go work in politics. Like, go try try your hand at it. And in one of my classes representatives uh, from UAB that promote the Washington Center came into a class and we're talking about it. So what it is, is a program that's in Washington, DC. And if you sign up for it and go, they give you a place to live. You take a class while you're there and you get, I think like 14, you get a whole semester's worth of credit hours. I think it's like 14 credit hours. But one of the great things is, is they do the back end work and place you in an internship. Okay. So because, you know, if, especially for people from Alabama who might not have connections up in DC, cause I didn't, they do that work for you. So you don't have to rely on connections and they give you a couple of options of areas you want to intern in. And then you like interview with people from DC over the phone. And then once you get up there, you're placed. Uh, so I was already set to graduate and UAB had agreed because I thought I wanted to do a master's program. UAB had agreed to let me go post-grad and then I could come back and decide where to put those credits towards a master's. So my two options for master's was a history master's or um, the public policy master's. And so I hadn't decided which area to go to yet. So that's how I got up to Washington. And for a while you kind of stayed. Um, here you are a, a young woman with a degree in political history, which begs the question, what do you do with the political history degree? But then you just kind of kind of snowballed and stayed in DC for a while. Yeah, I actually ended up staying for 10 years. Um, so when I got up there, I just instantly fell in love. The energy, you know, the energy is just, is intense. I mean, at this point in time, it's not nearly as fun of a place to be in as it used to be. And that it does come to why I left DC. But when I first got there, there was such a positivity. And, and for the first time in a long time, everyone I was interacting with was just as like jazzed about things that I was. And so I just felt such a mutual energy going on that I wanted to stay. So I actually interned with a nonprofit. I chose a nonprofit because I was interested in how nonprofits function in the city. And I didn't get a place on the Hill, which I would have loved, but those are really hard to come by. And usually the Washington Center doesn't have places like that. But so I got this cool internship with a uh, nonprofit that does educational programs all over the world. It wasn't like exactly what I wanted to do, but it just got, it got me there. And I just met so many people. It ended up meeting someone who had from the Washington Center who had come to do a talk with us about careers and future. And he ended up being a recruiter and took my number. And so I was, you know, wasn't until months later that he called me with a spot. And then I decided to stay in DC. So it was just, it just kind of happened. I also met my husband during that time. So, you know, and he was from New Hampshire. So that was a part where we were like, well, we can't leave BC because we have to stay here if we want to stay together. So there was a lot of things, but I'm very glad it worked out. And while you were in DC, you did a bunch of different things. Um, you worked for 
Halliburton in the Office of Government Affairs, Deloitte as a project delivery specialist, which you worked with the TSA in that position. Mm -hmm. What was kind of the goal with all of these different roles that you had? So Halliburton was like my first big break. Like it's so hard to get your first job. And and I and it, you know, it took me and my husband many months of looking. We both took like odd jobs, tipping jobs until we could land like the first DC real job. And just to everybody out there who's, you know, coming up on graduating, don't be discouraged. It's hard. And but you just have to, you just have to keep trying. So Halliburton was my first big break. And it actually came from the person I had met at the uh, Washington Center. And Iowa, Halliburton Government Affairs is a lobbying office for oil and gas for Halliburton uh, out of Texas. And one of the cool things about Halliburton was, is Halliburton doesn't actually own any oil. So that's something I learned while I was there. They are the drillers, all the drill equipment. So like, for example, if, if, if Chevron owns a rig, they will hire Halliburton to extract the oil. You know, oil and gas is one of those. It's like, there's some big hot button lobbying areas to be in in DC, like oil and gas is one. You know, it used to be the smoking lobby would be like a big one. Gun rights lobbies are big ones. Any of like, they, I would say powerful, I, you know? And so I got to kind of see all of these super powerful people and the way they worked. And I was just an assistant to the executive vice president. Um, so, but I got to do really cool things. You know, I had to monitor legislation on the Hill daily. If anybody mentioned us, I had to make sure my boss knew about it so he could talk about it and, and stuff like that. So it was very, it was very fast paced and it was very interesting. At the end of a year and a half, I was just, my, uh, I had such a positive outlook when I first went to DC, but after spending that year and a half in the real world of DC, you get a little disillusioned. Um, you start to feel like, oh, I mean, everything, you know, my votes don't matter. It's these people that matter. Like this is where the real work is being done. You know, I used to feel like people should stop focusing so much on their congressmen, like take a look at what these lobbyists are doing. You know, there's just so much power there and it's a whole atmosphere. There's after work things you have to do constantly. And I was just in a different stage of life that I had decided, you know, I really learned about how things get pushed into Congress, like how you lobby. I then met someone who worked at Deloitte in government consulting. And he was like, when you come over here though, you get to see what happens after they pass a bill because we have to enact it. We have to follow through. And so I found that super interesting, which is why I flipped over to government consulting, which I love. What kind of things did you do as a consultant for Deloitte? Obviously I had referenced the TSA work that you did because mm -hmm. you worked with them. What kind of things did you do? So when you go into government consulting, um, they place you at an agency. So, it, you know, and, and don't get me wrong, government consulting is its own its own deal. It's not like commercial consulting. So I'll try to explain that a little bit. Back in the eighties, when we downsized the government, we didn't actually downsize the government. We just moved it all to consulting. So, you know, a lot of jobs that, you know, have to be performed in the government are done by consultants. So it's not, it's not always just telling clients what they need to be doing, which is a fun part of it, but it's a lot of executing the people's work. And so I got placed onto TSA. Um, in the checked baggage department. And it was it was based out of Arlington, Virginia. So what we what my specific job was is when you check your bag at TSA, 
your bag goes through this giant screen machine, screening machine to check for bombs and et cetera, et cetera. The government has to buy those machines from companies, okay? And in order for a machine to be approved, it has to go through this government-funded tests and evaluation program. So that means it has to be tested to make sure it can detect bombs, it can detect high-density uh, things, um, it keeps the flow going. So if they're slow, that kind of thing. Okay. So my job was to manage that test and evaluation process. And it's very long. So I had one machine that literally was still in testing when I left TSA and I was there for four years. It's a very long, hard process. You were there, you mentioned for four years. Um, after that, you continued to work as a consultant and you went to eGlobal Tech still in dc so you mm -hmm. you weren't too disillusioned with dc because you no. started there so what kind of things did you do at egt that's when i found my dream job so that's when i finally hit that sweet spot of everything that fits my personality and it's actually what i do today but i just do it as a government employee um i came in to hhs was my contractor so or was my um client and i started working on this program called 405d and 2015, the Cybersecurity Act of 2015 was passed. And in that basically said, healthcare is really behind on cybersecurity. And it is a major target for cyber threat actors because it's, it's lucrative in PHI. People have to get their systems back up. So they will pay any amount of money to get that back up because they need to deliver patient care. And to, it basically called on industry and government to come together and create a consensus-based set of industry guidelines to help any any size organization beef up their cybersecurity. So out of that came this document called the Health Industry Cybersecurity Practices, Managing Threats and Protecting Patients. That is a mouthful. So we call it hiccup <laughs> and no pun intended on the, uh, on the name. In that lays out the top five threats, cybersecurity threats facing the industry. And then it provides 10 practices that, it, that organizations can implement today and start protecting their patients from cyber threats. Um, and so when I came on, that had, art, that had just been released in 2018 and I came in in 2019, I think. So great, this document gets written, it gets approved, it's pushed out, it's got HHS's seal on it, it's got industry collaboration on it, but how do you get people to read it? So that was my job, is promoting it, getting it out into the public, developing a dynamic communications program that's from the government to help healthcare. And that includes training healthcare. That includes telling them about the five threats. So lots of webinars, conferences, speaking, and things like that to get this out. Now, at that point in time, our document was just a helpful guide made by the government. So they had no beef to it. Like it wasn't mandatory. Like there are mandatory things that HIPAA puts out that organizations has to do, have to do, but this wasn't mandatory. But just last year, there was a new law that came out that basically said, uh, says um, it's PL116321, anybody in healthcare is interested in this. But um, it came out and said, if you follow the cybersecurity guidelines outlined by 405D, which is our program, then you could be subject to less fines if you did have a cyber attack. So, I mean, we're all working that out on our end on what that actually means. So as a government representative, I'm not saying that that's true yet. We're working that out. I have to say that. Just. <laughs> 
And so now, you know, I stayed at eGlobal and then as consulting goes, you lose contracts, you win contracts, you lose contracts, you win contracts. Um, my company had uh, lost a recompete, which is very common. It's not anything. It's a lot of the times downsizing. The government decided they want to go a different route. And they actually did. They went, they decided to do uh, a small business focused account. And anyway, I ended up getting hired because I was good at my job at that time into the new company. Yeah. And then just this past year so that this doesn't happen again i got hired into the government so now i don't have to worry about my contracts <laughs> you talked about the threats in that document to healthcare. what are the threats there's five major ones that this document outlines and the first one is social engineering or more commonly you know a part of it is email phishing that's just a way that people that bad actors get into healthcare. The more dangerous one that everybody looks to is ransomware. And that's our second threat. Um, and they're not ranked by how detrimental they are, but ransomware is basically when a bad actor takes over in some form, your computer systems, your data management systems, your network and locks it. And then it says, you'll get some kind of notification. Um, it's differently delivered every time saying, you know, your, your system is compromised in order to receive your data back or have access to your networks back, you must pay a certain fee, usually in cryptocurrency. This has been, you know, it happened in Alabama uh, two years ago with three hospitals. And so the reason why this is such an important thing to think about and to talk about is because they actually had to divert care during those times. So it requires hospitals, small offices to have to revert back to paper when most of your workforce probably has never worked on paper before. And so, you know, just think about if you're a nurse treating an ICU patient, a lot of your information comes on your computer screen, what medicine doses to give, when to give them, everything like that will, that, that will all disappear. You won't have access to any of that, or you could have the wrong information. That's one of the most you know, life critical, dangerous threats that we we talk about a lot. But um, if the other three are accidental or, or insider data loss, accidentally deleting data or stealing data. PHI, personal health information, um, is really lucrative on the black market. So stealing, that's got social security numbers, addresses on it. So if you've been to the doctor's office, you filled out one of those forms with all of your info. So those are very lucrative. And then there's attacks against medical devices, which is, you know, just terrifying in its own right. You know, having an attack on an actual device, changing what the device is saying and um, loss or theft of equipment. So if you're in a company and you lose your laptop, that's an easy way for a bad actor to get into your company, steal data information. We educate the country and also we we've now gone international we just did a conference in the uk and we did one in canada this past year you know it's just an ever-growing threat that keeps getting larger with every year you mentioned that it was a dream gig dream job for you working with this you've continued from the e-global tech company into where you're currently at why was it a dream job? You know, I'm going to tie some of this back to my history, too, uh, when I answer this. It was a dream job for a few reasons. One, it constantly changes. I constantly have a new set of things to to tackle. Of, of to, It's a lot of strategy work. And when you talk about strategy work, a lot of times strategy work is you have to, you have your goal of where you want to go. 
then you have to develop how you're going to get there. And then you also have to convince your higher ups that this is a good way to go. So one of the things that I, I really learned in my dynamic history programs, Dr. Keats uh, classes, Dr. Corley is whenever you make an argument in a history paper, you have to you have to lay it out in a certain way that convinces your reader. And you, you really have to think strategically on how you're going to lay that paper out. And, and yes, I am smalling it down to one paper. But one of the things that I really learned there is that that's pivotal in the working environment. You can be anyone in the working environment have a great idea, but if you don't know how to communicate that idea to someone who makes decisions, because you're not going to be somewhere that makes the decisions for a while. And if you can't do that, then, then none of your ideas are going to come to fruition. One of the things I really enjoy about this program is A, it's, it changes constantly. It's growing. So I, I'm, I got in at the bottom floor of this, this growing program, and it's been great to see it expand and be a part of that expansion and be you know instrumental in how where we're taking this. It's the sweet spot of what I've heard my colleagues say of government work. You're providing a clear service to the country. You are active with the public. So that means I am taxpayer paid and I feel like this is important and I can we can consistently make that argument to Congress that we need to be funded because we are making a difference. And I think that's that's why I love it so much is because my job has meaning and I feel very passionate about it in that sense. Where does your career go from here with everything that you've done? Obviously you've found the thing that you wanna be working with, but is this the end or what's the future? So I see myself staying in government for sure. Where that leads, you know, the sky's the limit. It could be different agencies because once you're in, it's really hard to get into the government, it's surprisingly. But once you're in, like there's, you know, so many different opportunities. I'm gonna stick with this program probably for a very long time, um, just because it is growing a lot. And I see myself being a part of maybe even the leadership position um, in the future in this program. So I definitely see myself staying with it. You know, and any kind of communications based, so it's very, I write a lot. So a lot, I write content all the time. And as long as my job, can, and you know, my writing skills came from my history degree. Um, as long as, you know, I continue to be challenged in that way and have those opportunities, I'm gonna be happy. What is the one biggest thing that you're able to do at UAB that led to the success you've achieved in your career? I would say there's a couple of things that were really instrumental in that. And, and one is the flexibility of UAB. Being able to go into your counselor and say, I really want to take this political science class, but it's not technically going to match my history credit that I need. Can you make this work? Sure. Like I can, you know, being able to, and that's how I crafted that political history idea and be the flexibility and also the opportunity of the Washington Center. I would say I had never thought of studying abroad and I know a lot of people do, and I don't know why I never thought of that until like I was about to graduate, but I would say take those opportunities. But one of the biggest things is, is, once you get there, if you if you do an internship in New York or especially in the country, you have to make the most of it when you're there. Like you have to do the networking, which is grueling and horrible, but it's so necessary. So I think the flexibility of UAB and then as I was graduating, me being like, I want to do a master's. I don't know in what yet, but can I do this program? And then UAB being like, yeah, just let us know. So it was a very personalized education that you don't get from a larger even though uab is large it still had that 
very student focused, student driven, just plan in front of you. You have become passionate about the university and you felt it important enough to get reacquainted with this. Yeah. Why? I was in DC for 10 years. And then when the pandemic hit me, my husband made a choice. I, I get to stay remote with my job. So we made the choice to come back down and live by my family. And he's real far from home from New Hampshire, but he loves it down here. And I guess being back in Birmingham, I just, I, I see UAB all the time and I just have such great memories from it. And I'm so thankful for everything I learned there. And I, I started reflecting on, you know, how proud I am of myself, which I'm not trying to like toot my own horn, but it is good to feel proud of, of yourself. And then, you know, really connecting a lot of that back to my time at UAB. So I, now that I'm here, you know, I've really wanted to get more involved so that I can, you know, if I can energize students or if I can help alumni in any way. That's Lisa Joseph. Lisa earned her Bachelor of Arts degree from the College of Arts and Sciences in 2013. Today, Lisa works as engagement lead for HHS 405D, aligning healthcare industry security approaches, a program that raises awareness and provides cybersecurity practices in the world of healthcare. Lisa has a newfound passion for her alma mater and definitely has a good idea of what it means to be a blazer. I think it means that you have to trailblaze your own path. Like, I think of the dragon like blowing out the the fire you know and that's one of the great things about UAB is you're not following some this is the way to do it this is the only way to do it you have to trailblaze your own path and it really gives you the tools to do that and so that I think that's what it means it's trailblazing your way to where you want to be when whatever field you're in be sure to listen into previous episodes of UAB Green and Told. Check out our website at alumni.uab.edu slash greenandtold. Have a story to share or know someone we need to get in touch with? Email greenandtold at uab.edu. Finally, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search UAB Alumni. Thanks for listening. And until next time, go Blazers.